And we actually we actually had some fucking comments on the video last time. Yeah, I've seen that. Uh, so I put it in Q&A section. Fuck. That's a guy Q and A. One of them's Harrison. I know that actually yeah. counts, uh, but doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> so I think anybody wasn't you, sir. Even if it's yourself, I don't care. Anybody <laughs> comment the goddamn videos. <laughs> Welcome to Health, Fitness and Success, Episode 3. We actually had some comments. Okay, welcome to Health, Fitness and Success, Episode 3. This is your podcast guide to winning at everything, podcast of peace. My name is Ben Tormey. My name is Mark. Hello. Hi. Yeah, great. Hey, um, good to be back. <laughs> great to be back after, uh, how long has it been? Six weeks? Five? Uh, no, it's more like three, isn't it? No, three weeks. Two, two and a bit. It's meant to be two weeks, but two and a bit, that's, that yeah. sounds better. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, should we start with the Q and A, or should we leave that for later? No, no, we'll do that at the end. It's like every, Sam, you know, it's just nice to get some questions for a change, isn't it? Yeah, it's real nice. <laughs> All kinds of comments on YouTube. <laughs> comments. Um, right. So the first piece we're going to kick off with is um, a gluten study that's been doing the rounds on the internet this week. I'll just pull up the link so we can talk about it. Um, it was published on realclearscience.com and basically the title of the, the, the topic is Non-Celiac Gluten Sensitivity May Not Exist. Um, so Ben, do you want to kick off on this one? Yeah, so basically, um, you know, if you're, if you're paleo, where is your God now? <laughs> that's, that's, the, <laughs> that's the takeaway point. No, I, I thought this was fascinating. I mean, I don't think this is necessarily conclusive either. Um, I mean, I, I more than anyone else probably would love to jump on this and say, ha, you know, you're wrong. Uh, there's no such thing as, uh, non-celiac gluten sensitivity. I'd rather wait until, um, there's some more evidence, uh, supporting this. But I think it does make a very good point, which is that, uh, a lot of people out there are removing gluten and getting a nocebo effect, which we know is happening. Um, there was a recent study, uh, done in Australia. And it was exactly, it was on the same idea as this. It was about gluten sensitivity, um, and, and people removing gluten from their diets and the reasons why they were doing that. And what they found is it was mainly social influences. So it wasn't people, you know, going to their doctor, um, and being told, you know, after running some tests that they had sensitivity. It was people consulting with friends, family, um, and, you know, it was this kind of cultural shift towards eating gluten free that had nothing to do with any actual symptoms or any evidence at all. Uh, and this just reinforces the idea that most people who seem to be going gluten free are, are doing it for uh, no no real reason at all. And they are getting what seems to be a nocebo effect. So in other words, um, they attribute a lot of uh, negative 
uh, side effects that they get uh, from, you know, it could be anything, but they attribute it to gluten. So if they feel tired, um, lethargic, low on energy, it's gluten. And as soon as they remove it, you know, they feel better, but it's all in their head. Uh, just a quote off the article, I think it'd be a good kind of point to note out. Bisigrishkishigi um, noted in a review published in December to the journal Current Allergy and Asthma Reports, Consider this, no underlying cause for gluten intolerance has yet been discovered. Moreover, there are a host of triggers for gastrointestinal distress, many of which were not controlled for in previous studies. Generally, non-celiac gluten sensitivity is assumed to be the culprit when celiac disease is ruled out. But that is a trap, one which could potentially lead to confirmation bias, thus blinding researchers, doctors, and patients to other possibilities. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> that's so, it, main. That's it, main. Uh, that was quite an interesting point. That, yeah. And um, moreover, there are no uh, no underlying cause for under gluten intolerance has yet been discovered. Yeah, which which I think is the the real the point of all of this, which is we, uh, people have jumped on this bandwagon, and uh, people have been selling products off the back of this without really understanding what's going on, and um. Especially this is a huge, I mean, this is going to be a huge market now. I mean, people are willing to pay more for gluten-free foods, which are often, you know, the nutrition, <laughs> the nutritionally inferior, uh, more expensive. Um, but people genuinely believe if they don't have them, that something really bad's going to happen. You know, well, they're going to. Well, wheat's bad, right? <laughs> it is. Yeah. I've got that, that wheat belly. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. Grain brains. Uh, <laughs> That, that crop that kicked off the agri- agricultural revolution so bad yeah. for you. It's coming, yeah, it's trying to get its own back now. But, but the thing is, I think we had this discussion ages ago when there was, um, we had that argument about autism being caused by gluten and, uh, and dairy. Um, about oh, the whole, right. you know, and it was the whole point that you can't really, you know, say that it was causal, you know, a dietary intervention. You couldn't really argue that that was causal in the improvement or you know the very subjective improvement of symptoms in that case point um, being is if you try to if you try to argue that it's causal you're going to sound like a dick yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly um and that's the interesting thing it's like again it's what they hit on here is you know the nocebo effect and it's fascinating because anecdotally i mean again going off n equals one samples um there's a family friend of mine who um, actually all of her symptoms improved after putting gluten, wheat and other, you know, like dairy, other products <laughs> she eliminated back in her diet. <laughs> so, damn it. <laughs> just blowing up my, uh, my preconceived notions of the world here. I know, but with like, your facts. Just, yeah, just proving things, you know, one, one sample of one person at a time. N, N equals one. <laughs> yeah. Drop everything. <laughs> but um but yeah i think the other thing is i think uh this was getting out of control with uh people taking this to extreme degrees as well i mean it's one thing if if you feel that you might have food intolerance it's another like becoming totally obsessive about removing wheat and grains from your diet i mean if you if you genuinely believe you have a an intolerance to something you have to be more systematic than this you know just removing gluten I think I've got a broccoli insensitivity. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've removed it from my diet for the last year and a half and I haven't had any negative um, responses. 
<laughs> so I think I, I might be correct. No, definitely. Uh, it's, it's pretty lethal. Um, <laughs> pretty lethal stuff. I don't know what the LD50 on broccoli is, but... Uh, it's all green and shit. It can't be good for you. <laughs> yeah. Not green is good for you. Uh, right, cool. Um, so here's another um, article. This one is in uh, www.mpr.org. Um, so this is on red red, red wine. Um, reserver. <laughs> I'm so bad at pronouncing Res- the name. Resveratrol. That's resveratrol. the one. That's may not be the elixir in red wine and chocolate. So basically the article goes on to say that Although there have been health benefits found in red wine, chocolate, um, the, the antioxidant that had been kind of fingered as a possible mechanism turns out may not be the actual mechanism. Uh, I just want to bring up that uh, Cochrane study that I brought up right in the first um, episode that showed that antioxidant supplementation actually had an increased mortality when compared when um, compared to no intervention. Uh, it was only like a 0.3% effect, but it was it was there, and um, it was a review of some like 500,000, 600,000 cohort. And um, like the Cochrane studies are like of the, pretty much the gold standard as far as systematic review goes. Yet this um, that antioxidants are good for you still persists for some reason. Yeah, it's funny because <laughs> it, t- it turns out you make money off the back of that, doesn't it? So crazy. No, no. Nah, nah, nutritional companies are here for us. They're here for the good. For the gains. For the gains. The gains yeah. of society and the health gains of everybody else. Yeah, so so there's you... no monetary incentive. <laughs> so, so my understanding of this was, um, you know, that the idea with resveratrol was that it was tied in with the, you know, the CERT1 pathway um, and, and stuff like that. So it was um, basically improving the functioning of, of mitochondria. Um, I guess that would be tied in with PGC-1-alpha as well. Um, but the, the, I didn't really, from my understanding of, of what I've read of the research, I don't see how you can necessarily get the dose of resveratrol needed or, you know, or at least do it in a living human being. Um, getting it from, you know, red wine or, or chocolate, I, I mean, it's one thing saying that it might have an effect in vitro, um, but especially, you know, in, in rats or whatever they've, they've studied, I imagine it would be rats, um, that they're usually quoting, uh, rat studies. Fat, um, happy rats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it, it just seems difficult to then extrapolate that to humans because there's all sorts of things that you can. Yeah. You can, that's, um, that, that's part of like, uh, Ben Gold, Cold Care's book, Bad Science, which is great. If anyone hasn't read it, highly recommend you read it. Um, he basically has a part in the chat in his, uh, book called From Petri Dress to Human and basically he goes from like, uses an example of um, vitamin C, if you inject it into a cell, like a, a single cell organism, it has a cascade of effects and has these positive benefits, but when you try to extrapolate that up to a human, which is a multi-trillion cell organism, that it is not quite that simple um, it, it doesn't really bear out that something that has a, a small effect on the molecular le- level on a system, like a closed system, like a single-celled organism, you can almost bet your bottom dollar that's not going to have the same effect on something like a person. Um, so I think this is like, like if you look at the 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 biggest um, killers in the West, stress and heart disease. What does alcohol and chocolate do? <laughs> <laughs> Makes you relax. So, um, yeah, but my my money would be on it's just the relaxing effects of 
the chocolate or alcohol has on these people's lifestyle that causes the health benefit or the, the lack of mortality, not not the reversible or whatever it's called. But the thing is as well, uh, I think the problem is we're very quick to uh, isolate individual compounds in food, in, you know, in what we eat without taking into account that it might be acting in concert with a whole other well like in this article they actually said it might be several polyphenols working together so another example of that is you look at caffeine um if you isolate caffeine from coffee you actually cut out a lot of the other beneficial compounds um there's like coffee yeah like coffee. <laughs> yeah like the taste of coffee yeah exactly um but there's uh, you know there's compounds in coffee that mimic acetylcholine for instance um, which so you're not going to get the benefit of, of drinking coffee just by having a caffeine supplement, but it's the same idea with um, you know taking a concentrated resveratrol supplement and <clears throat> not having a glass of red wine. Like you mentioned there, very important point. It's missing the whole context of you know having a glass of wine. What is that process? What does that involve? It involves you possibly relaxing a little bit more, <laughs> enjoying something which maybe tastes nice instead of just popping a pill. Yeah. Um, so, like you said, there's all sorts of things there that I don't think are accounted for. So, so yeah, that's just another supplement we've uh, destroyed again. So. But if you <laughs> did want to find someone, see if you could consume enough um, red wine or chocolate to see if it had, um, if you had, it took enough that it got enough, what's it called again? The resveratrol. Yeah, that one. <laughs> <laughs> if you got someone to drink enough red wine and eat enough chocolate to see if you could build up enough in the body to actually have an effect. I think you'd probably that'd probably be a fairly, fairly successful study, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. Like you're gonna find the uh, we'll pay for chocolate and red wine. Yeah, let's have some of that. Um, okay, so that pretty much covers that. Um, nah, do we want to do um, the the fat guy? Yeah, the, or, yeah. Or the former <laughs> fat guy. Fat guy. Yeah. So, so that was the article you sent me about um, the guy dubbed Britain's fattest teenager. Well, formerly. Britain's fattest teenager. He's obviously lost that title now, and he's going to have to work hard to get that back. <laughs> um, he lost it's take some dedication. Man. <laughs> he lost uh, over two hundred thirty-five pounds uh, and claimed that the NHS won't remove the excess skin because he's too fit. So um, when he started, he weighed about four hundred pounds at the age of sixteen. And he started going to the gym. Some bad games, bro. <laughs> it made some insane games. Um, but they, you know, he says he's been denied the surgery to remove excess skin um, because with with the amount of muscle he's added um, through going to the gym and, and weight training, uh, he's still classified as overweight due to BMI. So this is another article <laughs> in uh, attacking BMI. Um, and just um, a side note here, um, I do know that when you know someone has lost a dramatic weight uh, amount of weight like that and has got loose skin, that is a very serious issue you know cosmetically it has all sorts of effects on 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 their well-being psychologically um it is is a very you know serious issue so not to make light of that whole thing at all but this is another case of bmi bashing which i think is being you know misconstrued by uh, the media please respect the serious tags (laughs) yeah um yeah just reading through it a bit um to be fair to the guy, like he's done exceptionally well, and the the loose skin does does not look good. No, no exactly. Um, so I might actually be on the side of this guy. Yeah, yeah. I think um, it's a bit of a shame that they would deny him surgery just based off the fact that he was overly BMI limit just because he built muscle. 
But then, on the other hand, you could stop lifting for a bit, lose a bit more weight, and then get the surgery, and then start lifting weights again. Yeah. Rather than complaining about it on the internet. Yeah, I mean, and the the thing that puzzled me about this article, and the reason why I was hesitant to, you know, to immediately side with him, was because apparently the Doncaster Clinical Commissioning Group, which quoted here, said that there is funding available to pay for surgery following extreme weight loss. So I don't know whether or not he's pursued that fully. Um, I mean, either way, yeah, I'm fully behind the guy getting surgery for the excess skin because he's done a great job. And, yeah, I I think it is hugely um, important to to make sure that he, you know, has that just for his own well-being and his, for his confidence. Um, but, yeah, I just – I think the, the reason – I'm hesitant about siding with him completely is bringing BMI into it and saying, well, you know, it's BMI is stupid and the NHS is stupid for using BMI. I just think it's, it's the wrong way to approach it. I mean, yes, yeah, they may have, made, may have made a bad decision in that case, but, um, if, um, he wanted to start off like a Kickstarter for laser surgery for his tattoos. Yeah. Um, I'd happily contribute to that <laughs> to <the> removal because <laughs> they are awful. Uh, it's one of dumb dare tribal tabs. Oh, so. bruh, so Murray. Much Murray, yeah. wow. <laughs> yeah. Alright, cool. Um, yeah, so that's, that, that's on doeven.com, which is a blog about lifting, I would assume. Yeah, that's so. Lift. Do, do they even lift? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I would question their, their journalistic uh, integrity <laughs> to some degree, but. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> <laughs> like doeevenlift.com. <laughs> Yeah, um fucking misc virgins. Um all right, so that covers that another BMI cuz everyone loves a bit of BMI. Um right, next one comes from a even less reputable source, bbc.co.uk. <laughs> um basically this was actually quite an interesting one. Um endurance exercise interferes with heart rhythm. Um cross of it being uh Although endurance exercise training can be harmful, can have harmful effects on the heart, it is more than outweighed by the bene- by the beneficial effects. Thanks, Professor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, it was done on mice, was it? I haven't actually read that. <laughs> have you read yeah, it? Um, I was hoping you'd read it, to be honest. But uh, that's not. That's we'll just just continue we'll, on. We'll pretend we've read it. Um, basically, the the, the bottom. The very telling quote they have here is, if the findings are reproduced in humans, they could have implications for heart health in older athletes, but much more research is needed before we could draw that conclusion. For fuck's sake. So this is a mouse, yeah. A British Heart Foundation team found exercise in mice triggers molecular changes in the part of the heart that generates its natural beating rhythm. This may explain why elite athletes have low resting heart rates, and more risk of heart rhythm disturbances, they told Nature Communications. That's funny, because I thought the, the low rest and heart rate of athletes was due to increased stroke volume, due yeah. to increased uh, left or larger intakes from the left ventricle wall, and also it gives a larger output, because um, it pushes more forcefully. Again, increased stroke volume, which means that each yeah. beat is actually more efficient. It, it pumps out more blood than an untrained heart does, and due to the, the reduced level of stress for the heart at rest, and that's why athletes' hearts are, have lower heart rates. Um, but it would be really interesting if that was actually a deleterious um, training adaptation. 
Yeah. I mean, endurance athletes more likely to um, die prematurely for something like heart, heart, heart arrhythmia, which would be another reason not to do cardio, which would be fucking awesome. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting because I, you know, I made the same assumption as you about, um, you know, stuff like left ventricular hypertrophy in athletes and, um, I don't, re- I mean, I, I know there's cases of sudden death in athlete, you know, top level athletes and, I don't know to what extent that's necessarily even connected with endurance events either. And I think the problem here is that this is a very strange message to give the public because most people, uh, you know, the vast majority of the population are not going to be at the level of, uh, you know, extreme endurance events. They're not. Yes, people are doing the odd marathon every now and again or the odd fun run, but it's not the same as being an elite, you know, high level endurance athlete. So I don't know if even if these risks were real, they would necessarily filter down to the average person who just needs to go and do a bit more exercise. Um, What you would like to see is, rather than pointing out a mouse study, maybe someone who read this article maybe go and look at some epidemiological data in insurance (laughs) athletes to see if they had a lower or higher survival rate compared to normal people. Well, no, because that would have meant that we wouldn't have had to, you know, had, well, we wouldn't have had anything to discuss then because it would have been, you know, could have just read from the article then and, and made no <laughs> Endurance <laughs> exercise is good, do it. Yeah, exactly. That, that, uh, that doesn't sell newspapers. Um, yeah, so a mouse study that tells us something about the effects of endurance exercise on mice hearts. Yeah, sweet. Listen, I'll remember sweet. that. The next time I go for a run. Which will be never. <laughs> yeah, never, yeah. Um, so we could do the fish oil one now, I guess. Yeah, may as well. <laughs> Please, God, I, tell me you've, written, you've read this one. I, well, no, I have actually read this one, yeah. Oh, so, yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, the headline this this one is um, the popular fish oil study deeply flawed, new research uh, says. So what they're talking about here is that... Um, that one of the studies often quoted um, to help sell fish oil was based on the heart disease rates of uh, Greenland Inuit. Okay, so indigenous population who consume, you know, large amounts of fish oil um, and omega-3 fatty acids because they, you know, they eat blubber from whales and seals. <laughs> you know, so they uh, they eat fish. Too, Craig. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but. The interesting thing was here that they, in that study, they relied on public health records in Greenland, so, uh, and hearsay. (laughs) So they weren't actually (laughs) reporting, uh, any real measurements from the Greenland Inuit. They were just extrapolating. Um, so yeah, this, this study that they're talking about is kind of junk on the face of it now. Um, I mean, having said that, the problem here is, the implication is that fish oil is junk. However, there, you know, there are lots of other studies you can look at which support fish oil. I mean, I, I think most meta-analysis that I've seen shows that fish oil is either, you know, neutral or has a slight beneficial effect. You know, uh, but totally worth I mean, probably quite a month. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm not convinced. I don't really see the need for fish oil uh, as a supplement, um, especially not in the doses recommended by most people. But um, but yeah, I, I think at best it's probably slight beneficial effect in some cases. I'm firmly in the camp that it's a waste of fucking time. (laughs) Um, Here we got uh, N3 fatty acids for fish oil or fish oil supplements 
Um, cardiovascular disease outcomes in primary and secondary prevention studies, a systematic review. Um, the studies on the relation between dietary, blah, 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 blah. Primary prevention of cardiovascular disease was reported in one random controlled trial in 25 prospective core studies and in seven case controls. No significant effect on overall deaths were reported in three random controlled trials that evaluated the effect of visual patients with implantable cardioverter defibrillators. Most cohort studies reported that fish consumption was associated with lower rates of all-cause mortality with adverse cardiac outcomes, blah, blah, blah. The effects with um, stroke were inconsistent. So it's been shown to have um, a good effect on survivability of cardiovascular disease. So, yeah, yeah maybe. Yeah, I, I think most of the studies I've seen where it had a really positive effect were on uh, clinical interventions with various sorts of disease states um so yeah in that case yeah cool um cool. But like you said i'm, I'm not going to be buying it yeah i'll save my money um but you could eat some fish no whoa 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 whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> whoa i'm not eating any food now uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh, this supplement industry like you said last time uh you know is out there to help us. Totally <laughs> it's, cool, man. it's making totally these cool. products for a reason. They're your bros. <laughs> <laughs> they don't want your money. They just want you to live a long, prosperous life. But you know, actually, another th- interesting thing on the back of um, mentioning the Inuit here was um, that a lot of the the idea that you know the Inuit live uh, in ketosis is also flawed as well because um, what what they don't account for in a, a lot of you know when people quote that is that they actually get carbohydrate from muscle glycogen because they eat the uh, you know the raw uh, animal that you know when they eat uh, yeah. the stuff they catch the whales and seals so um, they actually get about I think it was 50 grams of carbohydrate oh. I saw quoted so you know they're, they're making mad gains because they <laughs> 50 grams of sugar as well <laughs> yeah exactly um, fuck so yeah but basically don't trust any studies done on Inuit um, uh, okay <laughs> <laughs> why is that because they're a disreparable risk yeah I mean just Eating, eating that that glycogen. Uh, eating the whales, man. Eating <laughs> the whales. Yeah, I love whales. the whales, bro. I love whales. Yeah, <laughs> that's so hard. Um. Oh yeah, another one I want to mention quickly was Vibram, the guys who make the funny oh, yeah. finger shoes. They're getting sued now. There's uh, a shout out to one of my friends, Martin Bunyan, one of the early adapters of the the Vibram five finger shoes. <laughs> he also coincides with the douchebag. Yeah. So, well, what up, Martin? <laughs> I mean, uh, in the interests of full disclosure, I I also own a pair. Uh, <laughs> you, you did, <laughs> but I haven't worn them in a long time. I uh, I mainly wear them for comedy value now. Um, not not because I believe the claims which I they cross the tormony. Yeah, I, I I don't believe the claims uh, mainly because uh, you know they're getting sued for that. <laughs> so. What we're making a. Uh, Claims no scientific evidence. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's actually on an unrelated note. Um, I, I was listening to. I don't know if I mentioned the podcast before, but I listened to a podcast called Physio Edge. Um, it's an Australian podcast, and they cover funnily enough physiotherapy. Um, and they had a guy on who's um, basically was like a foot specialist, or his um, specialization was overuse in runners and um, ways of preventing and um, things like shin splints and. Um, 
other various things you get from jogging. And he was saying the best way to improve someone's running mechanics was to actually remove running shoes. Uh, reason being that the supported heel actually um, encourages like a heel strike. Like yep. heel strike, steel strike's okay if heel strike comes under the center of mass or it comes under the center of gravity, under the center of a balance. So if you're striking under yourself, it's fine because you go through like a bent knee joint and you can support the load. Where it becomes a, a problem is when you like kind of strike out in front, almost like decelerating in the in the glide. So if I put my foot straight out in front of me and strike the floor when I'm jogging, what you do is you, you lock up your talus and it locks up the entire structure of the leg which means that your hips are just taking that impact over and over again. And that's one of the major mechanisms, not the major mechanism, quite a lot of the you know, bad effects that like endurance, like joggers and whatnot get. So you can be saying that like getting like a, either running barefoot if possible or running with like a, like a very thin um, sole actually prevented like forefoot striking uh, midfoot striking or striking under the center of mass and improve like the running gait of these people. So that could be a use of the fiber and five finger. So you're saying I should keep, I should keep hold do you, of my... Do you do a lot of long, slow distance jogging? No, I don't. Then throw them out. Okay, fair enough. I mean... <laughs> Unless you want I mean, to like a juice bag, in which case, put well, them I, mean, that, I kind of, I kind of do in a way. Um... <laughs> Save it for special occasions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So much of what's that again? The three point seven five million. Uh, yeah. That doesn't really sound like a lot. I guess maybe maybe for a company like that it is though because I I mean I don't know how much they turn over. I'm guessing it's you know way more than that. But um, it does seem like it does seem like a significant amount to. Well, I don't know. I I, I guess I'd have to look at their accounts, but. Um, it, I think three million is an awful lot. To, it's more the reputation damage, I would say, as well. That uh, I had to say about publicity. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. no bad publicity. So, yeah, and interesting. Huh? So, uh, if you if you do own a pair of Viper Five Fingers, you are officially a douche. It's science. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, shall we move on to the topic of the week? Yeah. Yeah. Let's do that. Um, so yeah, let's talk about uh, occlusion training because because um, I've actually been trying that out uh, again after not really trying it properly. I just gave it a, a quick shot a couple of times. Were you just uh, shooting up heroin and decided to do some curls? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You yeah, can well, talk that, to me about it. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I started on the creatine and then you know it just spiraled out of control <laughs> as it does. Um, yeah, so I, I thought I'd give it a proper shot and actually follow you know. Uh, a protocol uh, in the literature to see if I could get some mad gains. Um, so, just out of interest, have you been using a tourniquet? Or have you been using a cuff? So, or did I you think, acquire said device, or have you been using it on? So, what I what I started off was um, I have some uh, knee wraps which uh, I use for occluding the legs. I have wrist wraps which I use for occluding the upper arm, um, and I kind of just. You know, adjust the tightness um, with the Velcro, pulling them tight. I don't have the proper cuffs, so I'm sure that makes a difference. Uh, you know, in, in terms of practical results. Um, but you know, based on the literature I've seen, you can get away with using wraps, uh, assuming you do it properly. Yeah, um, I don't think um, there's actually anything to to say that it matters how you achieve the occlusion. 
Uh, I don't think they've actually got that far into the research. Yeah, anyway, I be- continue. I believe the main thing, as long as you are preventing the Venus return, um, it, it, you know, the main that's the main point of occlusion. If you're not doing that, it's not occlusion training. Uh, if it's too tight, obviously you you know you're at risk. Um, but yeah, so the the protocol was pretty much what I've seen in Jeremy Lernicker's, uh publication. So you do a set of thirty, and then three sets of fifteen. Um, and in general, the idea is you start off with isolation movements, um, and you build up your tolerance for the, the pain, because <laughs> it's very painful of doing it. Um, and you don't stay occluded for too long. So you take the wraps off after doing your sets. Um, but you keep them on while you're actually performing the work sets and it, the, the rest times are usually about 30 seconds to a minute. So it's actually quite challenging to get through them, especially, when I find out uh, you do calves, so I gave the calf um, training a go with occlusion, and it was one of the most painful things I've ever experienced in my life. Um, I was I was praying for death uh, halfway through. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I don't know if this is going to translate into gains, but you know, it felt good anyway. Um, pretty much, like uh, I've got two studies here, but we did um, sit through a talk at the last UKSAA conference, or maybe two UKSAA conferences ago, that is United Kingdom Strength Conditioning Association. Um, there was a guy whose name escapes me. It might have been Ben Rice, possibly. That's probably completely wrong. Um, anyway, isn't he a powerlifter? Possibly. This guy wasn't. This guy worked with the um, English Institute of Sports Intensive Rehab Unit, and nice. occlusion training training is something they use a lot with. Um, Athletes come straight out of surgery, so for example, if you come back with ACL reconstruction, um, within about 24 hours you'll be on a leg extension with an occlusion cuff doing like three sets of 15. They, they had actually looked at the results over time and actually come up with protocols. Um, I can't remember those protocols off the top of my head, but anyway, it was like three to five sets of like 10 to 15 reps at very low intensities, like 30, yeah. 40% of your 1RM. Um, and they had actually tried like higher intensity, lower intensity, moderate intensity, many sets, fewer sets, and they'd found that um, like a fairly what looks on paper like a fairly moderate approach, like thirty percent, forty percent, three sets of fifteen, four sets of fifteen, was actually the most um, uh, beneficial way of doing it. And they also found there was like a it only kind of lasted for about two or three weeks. It's not something you can do indefinitely and just get swollen and swollen. <laughs> uh, so I've got uh, two studies here published in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning. Um, first one's from 2009, Lonek et and it's um, it's written in all caps. So I don't know if I should shout this out. Uh, low intensity occlusion training provides a unique beneficial training mode for promoting muscle hypertrophy. Training intensity is as low as 20% of one RM with moderate vascular occlusion and results in muscle hypertrophy and as little as, and as little as three weeks. Typical exercise prescription calls for three to five sets to voluntary fatigue with short rest periods. The metabolic buildup causes um, positive physiological reactions, specifically a rise in growth hormone that is higher than levels found with higher levels of intensity. Clues training is applicable for those who are unable to sustain high loads due to joint pain, um, cardiac rehabilitation, athletes who are unloading, and astronauts. Uh, Buzz Aldrin, got to get swole, boy. Uh, the, the next one's from uh, 2012 September. Uh, occlusion training increases muscular strength in Division 1A football players, so reasonably decent athletes. And uh, there's a four-week low-intensity resistance training with blood flow occlusion. 32 subjects 
and they're randomized into an occlusion group or a control group. The athlete performs four sets of bench press and squats in the following manner, with or without occlusion. 30 repetitions of 20%, predetermined 1RM, followed by three sets of 20 at 20% of 1RM. Each set was separated by 45 seconds. The training duration was three times per week after completion of regular off-season training. Um, data collection included health history, resting, blah, 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 um, squat 1RM, bench 1RM, upper and lower chest girth, upper chest, fuck, upper and lower arm <laughs> girth, thigh girth, um, height and muscle mass. That girth. That's so girthy. Um, the increases in bench press and squat 1RM, 7 8% respectively, upper and lower chest girth, 3 and 3% respectively, and left and upper arm girth was significantly greater in experiment group. Occlusion training could provide additional benefits to traditional strength training to improve muscular hypertrophy and muscular strength gains. So I, I'm hoping during this program they were doing like a proper program as well, in which case it's quite interesting because the athletes did 20% of the 1RM, which obviously 30 reps isn't going to provide a training um, stimulus for someone who isn't using occlusion. But um, a 7 and 8% Increase in bench and squat one RM versus what though? Oh, was there no comparison? No, because if okay. it's seven and eight percent, then that's not significant. Mm. But I'm assuming this is just in the the uh, experimental group. Uh, I could actually get the full text, but it would take me about two minutes, so I'm not gonna. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, no one's no one's gonna read it anyway. So <laughs> no one's listening to this shit. <laughs> exactly. Apart from the two guys who commented, yeah. Um, yeah so I mean, it's quite interesting. Like I, I, I said to you before we started recording the podcast, I, I work quite a lot uh, in rehabilitation of players, and this is something we are going to look at um, with a couple of our knee rehab guys. So it'll, it'll be good to see this actually practically in action. Because I've been aware of it for a while, but I'm not actually using it. Yeah, and I think um, I think this ties in with a lot of other stuff going on uh, in research. I mean, I, there's a really, really good paper by Stuart Phillips' team, um, and it's called Low Load High Volume Resistance Exercise Stimulates Muscle Protein Synthesis More Than High Load Low Volume Resistance Exercise in Young Men. Now, when you couple this with um, some other research by guys like Schoenfeld, where basically, you know, it's, it's about workload you know, for, you know, if you want to get bigger, you have to increase your workload and if you if you have an equivalent amount of volume it doesn't matter whether you do 10 sets of three or three sets of 10 yeah. but of course three sets of 10 is easier than 10 sets of three um yeah <laughs> um so what i find interesting is that this is actually kind of backing up a lot of the ideas of traditional bodybuilding training which is you know higher reps uh volume going to failure um and this paper that i just mentioned there um now, they're citing previous work, which is suggesting that protein synthesis sort of maxes out at 60% of 1RM. Um, and, you know, even at low loads of 20%, you still get mixed protein synthesis. Um, and they're talking about, you know, comparing different loads and volumes. So I think that the occlusion training ties into that nicely because it's just showing you that when you have, you know, the right amount of volume, um, and you use the appropriate intensity. In this case, you know, the occlusion is a kind of intensity technique. Um, even at low loads, you still get the same um, stimulus for growth. Uh, you don't necessarily have to be hammering yourself with 90% of 1RM, you know, even, you know, 80% of 1RM for, for reps uh, to get that sort of um, 
progression. It's been quite, well, it's been common knowledge for some people for quite some time, like in the sports science. Yeah. Um, world. If you look at texts like Zdarsky's Science Practice Strength Training, I think it was originally written in the late 90s, but Zdarsky and most of his research comes from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, 80s, the Russian um, weightlifting system, sports systems. And if you look, they have like um, various tables, like there's the, can't remember the fucking name of it, um, but it basically tells you the zones you should train in. Like if you train yeah. at 9%, the optimal amount of sets, optimal amount of reps, optimal amount, so Perpins tables is called. Yeah, I've seen that, I think I've seen that um, too. Yeah, so there's, that's that's purely for strength gains, but there's um, there's similar kind of things. But basically, they say that for our mus- muscular hypertrophy, the important thing is volume of work done, yeah. actual mechanical workload. Um, and they they basically say the reason you use larger loads in training for muscle muscular hypertrophy is because it makes it more efficient. So if we say like volume load, so sets times reps times load, so three yeah. sets of ten, a hundred kilos is three thousand kilos. You could try and make that up with 30 kilos, but it's going to take a hell of a lot longer yeah. than if you do three sets of 10 100. So it's basically just a math scheme if you look at it that way. Like if you just look at the tonnage and the response you get from the tonnage, there's like a, there's like a happy medium. And that's why most bodybuilders tend to stay 8 to 12 reps for multiple sets is because it works. Yeah. And it works efficiently. <laughs> um, so some of the things I, I find fairly interesting um, is some of the work around like growth hormone response and like lower rest uh, for purely for hypertrophy, like lower rest periods, um, 60 to 90 seconds, low intensities, like 40 to 50%, 60% of one RM, and just like bashing it. Um, uh, there's some studies showing that that's had a like a positive effect on muscular hypertrophy versus like a more traditional kind of two, three minute uh, kind of rest protocol. Yeah. And that's associated with like rises in IGF-1, rises in heart growth hormone and Various other cascade hormones that some of most of which do fuck all, but there seems to be some mechanism <laughs> there that uh, if you take like l- lesser rest periods, it, it kind of it promotes hypertrophy. Yeah, I mean it's interesting, isn't it? Because there'll be a number of things going on, like the actual cell swelling. <clears throat> you know, actually growth factors in the cell. Um, as well, I, I I don't really pretend to know all of the mechanisms. You know, I don't don't think we conclusively know what's going on here. But uh, the the interesting thing that I found from this particular study, which you know again backs up what you were saying, which is that when you looked at three different groups here, they had uh, one group which were training with ninety percent of their one RM to failure, another group were training thirty percent of one RM to failure, and then they had a work match group, so they were using thirty percent of their one RM but did the same. Uh, work as the uh, 90% 1RM group. Now, even though the protein synthesis was um, comparable, um, you know, at four hours after exercising, actually after 24 hours, the guys who'd done the lower intensity, you know, the 30% 1RM group, they had greater um, protein synthesis over 24 hours. It was elevated for longer. So, I think that's that's an interesting thing to take home as well, you know, when you're designing your training, because I think all it's really telling us is that, you know, workload is what matters. But, um, um, you know, fiber recruitment is, like you were saying, is important. But um, you need... It's, it's if, important for strength. It's not yeah. important for hypertrophy. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. So so fiber recruitment is important, but it's, it's also actually doing something once you've maximally, actually maximally recruited those fibers. You actually have to have some degree of 
failure, I think. The, 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 like the recruitment patterns and those, like, that comes down to like rate coding, um, inter and intramuscular coordination, yeah. uh, rate of force production. It, it, it's basically the skill of lifting. Yeah, exactly. So like that ability to like fire off, like lift that. That's why for training for strength, anything under eighty percent is pretty much a waste of time because it doesn't. Like if you just look at size, like have you ever seen size principle? Yeah. Yeah. If you look at size principle to get to the the levels of activation we want for strength with a lesser load, so like seventy five percent, you need to go to you need to do ten reps of that percentage. If you ever done three sets of ten at seventy five percent? It's fucking hard. Um, <laughs> but it's only by the time you get that third set, you've accumulated enough fatigue to actually get to the point where we're like recruiting enough fibers, or we've put enough stress on the system that we're actually having the effect we want for strength. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Whereas we train at eighty percent, eighty five percent, and we just we you don't even have to go anywhere near failure, but we can recruit enough with each set. That we build up enough of that skill of that um, within the squad of firing the right motor motor units at the right time, firing them the correct pattern, and firing enough of them to make the skill of lifting that load easier. And then when that's too easy and that drops out of the eight percent range, then you move up the weight. And um, that's kind of something where I've come to in my training is I I've done fucking god knows so much like I've trained the failure every session, try to do more every session for one set. Basically, five three one. That that wasn't five three one. It was just me trying to do more. Um, I've done a full like linear periodization, which works, but it's fucking hard. And what I'm doing at the minute is I'm just lifting three times a week. And I don't do any more than doubles. I do a minimum of six sets, and like I'll do it three times a week. Uh, I'm like I'm pretty much stronger than I've ever been, and my training's like not as hard, nowhere near as hard as it has been in the past. Um, and that, that's just following like an approach where I'm just building up. A volume of lifts in the correct percentages for strength gains. If I wanted to get bigger, then I'd do something similar. But I, I would, I, I would do machines. I would do dumbbells. I would do like four or five sets of eight to ten reps with sixty seconds in between. And I wouldn't lift heavy. I would just do a lot of it and move the weight up as I went. And that's how I would approach hypertrophy. There's no real need for like the like dog crap. That sort of method. That's there's no real need for it. As long as you're lifting with frequency, enough workload, increase the workload over time, eat the right amount of food, get enough protein, you'll grow. You take steroids, you'll grow faster. <laughs> pretty much long and short of it. I mean, yeah, um, I think I think DC is an interesting one to bring up because having tried that as well, um, what kills you is the systemic fatigue from just going to failure all the time. Um, and you just don't build up the volume that you, you know, you could if you were training at a lower intensity, but, but accumulating more workload. Um, you basically, you have to look at these programs as, am I a natural or am I not natural? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much do though. I mean, you, you can have like good naturals. Like I could probably do dog crap for a while and get gains off it, but I'm going to fall off. Someone who's maybe less talented than me might fall off faster. So an endurance athlete would fall off after the first session. <laughs> um, uh, you need, uh, the, the, you can train. Basically, being on steroids is like being a new to weights for a period of time. So if you're on it for twelve weeks, you're new to weights for twelve weeks. So you can do what a new would do, which is go to failure and get stronger and get bigger, doing that training methodology for the period you're on it. 
until the, the part where the the compounds are not having an effect anymore. In which case, you either come off or do more. Like, that's like, it completely changes everything. It changes everything. Or you can just take uh, HMB. <laughs> which um, is better than steroids. Which, yeah, which you can now get from muscle tech. Uh, if you want to try that out. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't really have anything to add to that. Nah. So, uh, ah, it was a good chat. Uh, <laughs> no, that's that's one thing I would like to bring up um, at some stages, uh, like the fitness industry and what the kind of image it presents to people versus what it actually is. <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think that would be a very interesting conversation, one for another day, perhaps. Um, right, question and answers from our wonderful, wonderful people on YouTube. Yeah, we actually have some questions this time. We're sitting on 230 views, which is yeah. more than one. Yeah. Thanks. 200 of them weren't me. <laughs> Yousef's been hammering that video. He's been F5ing the shit out of that. Um, uh, cool. Uh, right, so this is from Harrison. Hello, Harrison. We don't know who Harrison is, of course. Um, what do you guys think about branding a wholly achievable physique as unrealistic because it is not what normal people look like? Unreal, unrealistic is often used in place of hard to achieve, in my opinion. That is IMO. Um, looking at someone being better than you at something and only being depressed by that is just a useless behavioral pattern. Q adverts about normal is beautiful by definition. It can't be. Otherwise, everyone would be. And if everyone was, there would be a new standard to what beautiful meant. Normal is normal. Is that a question? <clears throat> um, it's it's a question followed by, you know, a rhetorical answer. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I mean, my take on that is, um, it you know, talking about what's wholly achievable, it, that's sort of subjective up to a point. Uh, I know what he's getting at though is that you know a lot of people write off being able to achieve the sort of fitness model look because it's unrealistic because you know there's a lot. Of Maybe drug use involved or whatever, or genetics. Um, but yeah, if you if you work hard enough for long enough, you could probably achieve it. It's just not going to be achievable over, you know, <laughs> your summer cup. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think it I think it is unhelpful to brand the physique as unrealistic up to a point. Um, I think you do have to understand where your limits are when you train, um, you know, for aesthetics because. There, you know, you just have to face the facts that there are people who are genetically gifted, um, will gain muscle faster than you, will look bigger than you, they're structurally better than you. So even if you have the same amount of muscle, they still look better. They're naturally leaner than you. All of these different things that they have going Fucking for them. Bastards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, the point he's making, I guess, is that you can maybe still get close to that if you work hard enough. And yeah, I, I totally buy into that. I just think unrealistic, um, is is maybe a negative word to use um and yes it's maybe defeatist i understand the concept behind it though so um yeah i don't think it's necessarily helpful to to call a, a physique unrealistic if it's achievable it's just getting people to understand how you actually get there you know let, letting them know that when you set your expectations at that level it's going to take you maybe five years ten years to to look like that i think that's the the problem not necessarily the you know whether or not the physique is achievable, it's, it's having people know what it takes to get there. I think, um, just chucking my two cents, that um, 
it depends. Uh, this is contextual, as everything is contextual. Um, if you're looking at Arnold, if you look at Arnold Schwarzenegger, is that unachievable? You're fucking right, it's unachievable. <laughs> yeah. Um, unless you're willing to do what you got to do, and you got the genetics for it, which you wouldn't, because if you were, you'd be Arnold Schwarzenegger, or Ronnie Coleman, or Kai Green, mm, grapefruit. Um, <laughs> that, that, that's one for all my bodybuilding fans. Um, yeah, I mean, it depends on like what your linchpin is and what you're comparing it to. I, I do honestly think that quite a lot of the things that are pre- presented in the fitness industry are wholly unrealistic. Yeah. Hey, they take pictures of people in competition state. Anyone who's done a competition will know that is not a natural state. It takes a long time to get in that condition, and you don't stay in that condition for a long time. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think that the fitness industry does set an unrealistic kind of ceiling for people um, in the imagery they present to them in like whey protein ads, supplement ads. It's not natural physique competitors that you'll see who are actually natural because you wouldn't want to look at them. Because they're like it's not to say you can't build a impressive physique naturally, but yeah, they they might like the vast majority of what you see in magazines is not natural physique. It's that simple. And if you're a natural looking at that, thinking that's realistic, well, I got bad news for your friend. It's not realistic. <laughs> um, yeah, I I totally agree with the the point he's trying to drive home that it's not a reason to get depressed and. Like it's a negative attitude to think that it's unrealistic. You can't do anything about it. Totally agree with that. Just it depends what you're talking about, though, as of, as regards as what is unrealistic, and what he's saying about normal being beautiful. That's totally right. Normal is average. Average is average. Beautiful is beautiful, or else it wouldn't be beautiful. Yeah. So I agree with what you're saying. Just depends what you're talking about when you're saying unrealistic. Yeah, <clears throat> I think. Um I think if you look at some of the top sort of natural guys in bodybuilding, you know, who do have great genetics, obviously, and have put the work in, you know, I look at someone like Jeff Alberts, who's one of the 3DMJ guys, you know, he's been training for 20 years consistently, um, and he's still not quite where he wants to be. I mean, he's got a really great physique, but a lot of people would look at that and say, oh, that's unrealistic, because then they're just looking at the... Looking at 20 years down the line. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So it's looking at the... It's like looking at the before and after photos, not seeing what went between those two photos, you know, all the hard work, all the training. And and like you said, um, you look in a magazine, most people aren't natural, and yet when you look at a top natural guy who's been at, you know, you know at it for 20 years... Um, that's still unachievable for most people simply because they're not willing to put the work in. So you've got to sort of, I think you have to set a, a standard somewhere for what you, you know, because most people aren't going to put 20 years of work into in the bodybuilding unless that's their passion. So you've okay. got to if set... If you're being honest about it, like Brad putting Fight Club is unrealistic for most people because they won't yeah. have the dedication to get that lead. Yeah, exactly. So it's not going to happen. So it's unrealistic. Um, the sort of person that gets on the sort of conditions we're talking about wouldn't be swayed by this kind of advertising anyway. Yeah. The sort of person that would get up and do it themselves. So, if it's realistic for you, you probably wouldn't, um, you'd probably be doing it anyway, for the most part. Yeah. Or, you know, just eat, eat clean, trend hard. Um. <laughs> Came like a motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I guess, I always find natural bodybuilding to be like a, a strange strange habit a hobby of people um yeah 
Well, or maybe maybe another one for another time. Yeah, we can get into that. <laughs> Um, but yeah, fair, fair fucking play to you. <laughs> a lot of hard work goes into it. I mean, um, yeah. So and then, Marstar, what up, Marstar? Um, the other guy who commented on the video, that yeah, HMB I'll, I'll study <laughs> is an absolute joke. Six kg lean mass of gains, all kinds of gains, body fat loss, two hundred percent strength increase. Would a steroid do this in the summer time frame? Maybe it wouldn't. And if you don't see similar results, well, it's because it requires a super intense, mega high tech, undulating accommodation, intensification program requiring 200% maximum. Shout out to T Nation. Um, <laughs> so yeah, Ben, ben uh, replied to this guy saying that, um, was it Muscle Tech? Yeah, it's or, Muscle Tech. Or coming out, you go ahead. Yeah, so they just released, uh, it's funny, uh, off the back of this study, uh, they've just released an HMB. FA supplement. I just uh, called that man. <laughs> Someone might have called that shit. <laughs> yeah, you did. Yeah, you heard it here first. It's probably <laughs> the only time you'll be ahead of the curve on supplement developments. I'm um, sure, boy. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean that. Yeah, it is a fucking joke because um, you know if you select people and then you weed out the ones that you want to participate in the study, uh, you know, you really, you know, you don't just take whoever meets the criteria, you actually sort of filter them out based on who's going to, pretty much on who's going to get the results based on, on all the rhetoric. Um, yeah, it's, it's, but you're bound to get some anomalous results like this. And it's obvious that it has more to do with the training and the mentality of the people who were selected for the study than it has to do with the supplement. Of course, a lot of people are trying to say, well, yeah, it, it's HMB actually helps you train harder. It supports your training and that, that's how it works. But I, I honestly, do you think that's worth paying, you know, 30, 40 quid for? I don't think so. Nope. <clears throat> or they could have been eating, trend, cladding hard, and taking yeah. be at the same time. <laughs> for, for twice the gains, yeah. All the gains. Um, okay, uh, so any further questions or comments on the YouTube would be very much appreciated. Always great to have that. Um, you can send your emails into healthfitsuccess at gmail.com. That is healthfit, F-I-T, success all one word at gmail.com and our blog is healthfitsuccess.blogspot.com and i've got a url on my website www.castironstrength.com to these episodes if you want to go and have a look at them still haven't got a solution for um, posting them online but we'll look into that and get that sorted and i've been marquis and i've been ben tony until next time eat trend plan hard Take some of that HMB. <laughs> and stay mad. Stay mad. Oh, you're so mad. <laughs>